Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff. I am uh, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. Uh, if you have a Bible, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 13, as Dave just read. And uh, I could act like this was a Mother's Day text. Uh, I could uh, make up something about how the church is our spiritual mother. And so we most need to learn about ecclesiology, but you're too smart for that. You'd see through that ruse. And uh, so I'll just be honest. I think uh, this is what we do here at Parkway. We just preach through the Bible, and whenever the text is about mothers, we talk about that, and uh, otherwise, we think what you most need to hear about is not a sermon about you as a mother, or you as a father, or flag day, or whatever it is, but instead, you just need to hear whatever it is that uh, God has for us. So that's what we're going to be doing today. We'll just continue on in 1 Corinthians. That said, in honor of the day, I thought I would honor my own mom by telling a story about her, actually three different stories uh, about her, all of them from a couple of mission trips to, uh, to Africa that we were able to take uh, together uh, about a decade ago. And so on one of those trips, uh, it was late at night, I was uh, under my mosquito net uh, reading in bed, and uh, all of a sudden uh, my mom screams. She's in the room next to me, I hear her scream, so I bolt up out of bed, try to get through the mosquito net, get out of my room, go over into her room, and uh, expecting the worst, not even knowing what the worst is, and uh, anyone want to guess what it was? No, it's frogs. She needed me to defrog the room, and that sounds exactly like it sounds. And, uh, and so, uh, so, yeah, she needed me to go and collect up all of the frogs that accumulated in her room over the day and to escort them out of her room. I think she preferred that I would have killed them, but instead I just released them into the wild. And that became our, our uh, nightly rhythm, our routine. I would get in bed, she would scream, I would go in there, I would take all the frogs out, and, uh, and then that would be uh, it. And so that was kind of uh, our fun little uh, rhythm that we got into. And then after the, uh, the pastor training and the orphanage work uh, was over, uh, four of us from that team of I think maybe nine or 10 or so, four of us decided that we wanted to stay a couple of days and, uh, and go and do a safari. And it was absolutely incredible. We saw all kinds of, uh, of incredible animals. Uh, and it was great, except for the time this full-grown adult baboon jumped into our open-top Jeep, all right? And I've seen the Lion King, and this monkey was nothing like Rafiki, right? It didn't have, it wasn't carrying a stick, it didn't have this sage-like wisdom, it was just 100 pounds of muscle and two-inch teeth, and so now we're kind of freaking out because we have no idea what to do about this situation. It is honestly about two feet away from me, so I kind of position myself between this beast and uh, my mom, hashtag chivalry, and, uh, and so... <laughs> This showdown ensues between me and this baboon, and I have no idea what to do, and I'm pondering, should I punch the baboon, all right? And I'm kind of weighing the pros and the cons of this situation, thinking if I should do this, and I think if I do this, if I punch the baboon and it gets knocked out or it falls off the Jeep or something, I am a hero, right? I am Davy Crockett, I'm Teddy Roosevelt, I'm something like that, but if I miss, or even worse, I hit it and it doesn't get affected at all. Now all of a sudden there is this angry primate in an enclosed space with us. And so I am, uh, I'm sitting there for, in an African standoff with, uh, with this baboon for what seems like an hour, but what's probably only like 60 seconds or so, uh, until finally our guide stops the Jeep and, uh, and he walks around to the back and he literally just spanked the bottom 
of the baboon. And it ran off to do its monkey business or whatever. One more story and then we'll see what in the world this has to do with 1 Corinthians. Uh, so another trip uh, that we're on and uh, my mom is elsewhere. She's doing some uh, talking to some ladies and I have a break between uh, the, my teaching assignments. So I'm just kind of walking around the compound exploring when all of a sudden I hear screaming, which again, I'm used to in Africa because my mom would always scream whenever she'd see a frog. Uh, but this time it's not my mom. Instead, it's coming from about 100 yards uh, away. And so suddenly I notice that there are dozens uh, of men that are carrying rakes and shovels and machetes and so forth. And I'm wondering what in the world is happening. So I just start running along with them. Uh, and uh, when I get there, a, a crowd is gathered around a hut. I don't speak any of the dialects though, so I'm not able to understand what's happening. And then I spot one of our trans translators off in the distance. And so I go and, uh, and I ask him what's happening. And uh, some of you guessed what was happening earlier. And that is that there is a cobra, right? And, uh, and so there's this cobra. So the entire village basically had assembled in order to dispatch this threat. And here's why I tell you this, because in each of those uh, scenarios, in each of those stories, they're all true, by the way, there are animals where they shouldn't belong. Frogs don't belong in bedrooms, baboons don't belong in uh, jeeps, and cobras don't belong in homes. And so in each case, there was this effort that was made to remove them, but one of those things is not quite like the others. When it comes to defrogging a room, it really wasn't a big deal. If I happened to miss one or even if I wouldn't have been there, uh, the worst that happens is my mom loses some sleep. And with the baboon, I didn't have any clue what to do, but it turns out that you just slap it on the bottom Though if you ever try that and it goes bad, don't blame me. I have not researched it. I just saw it one time. But with the cobra, there is this immediate, there's this aggressive response by the entire community because of the severe danger that it represents. And I tell you that because unless you really realize the gravity, the severity, the danger of sin, this passage that we're looking at today won't make any sense whatsoever because this passage is about how do you deal with sin in the context of the church. So let's pray and then we'll dive in together. Ask you first just to pray for yourself that the Lord would give you eyes to see and uh, ears to hear and a heart that would be eager to obey. And then will you also pray for those around you that, uh, that the Lord would give us uh, collectively, corporately, um, that, that the Lord would remove whatever sort of presuppositions we might have about church discipline or whatever it might be and, and uh, together we would have a heart that would be eager to listen. And then lastly for me, for boldness and, uh, and faithfulness. Father, we confess this seems like a strange text to, uh, to talk about uh, today, and, uh, and yet uh, we trust that it's your word, and so therefore, by its very nature, it is good and uh, authoritative, and, uh, and so we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and hearts that would be uh, quick to love your word and to treasure it. So we ask these things because you're a good father, and you give us good gifts, and this text is one of them, so we pray in Christ's name, amen. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. We'll start here. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
So we're now in the third sermon in uh, chapter five of 1 Corinthians, and all of them are dealing with a topic that is called church discipline. It's everyone's absolute favorite topic. And that the, co- the context here is that there is this man, and he's engaging in this unrepentant sexual immorality. We saw a couple of weeks ago, it's of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. But the, uh, the letter really isn't written to rebuke this particular man who's an, in, in, uh, engaged in sexual morality, but rather to reprove or to rebuke the church for refusing to deal with this man and his sin. In other words, for theological and perhaps even sociological reasons, the Corinthians haven't done anything about it. They've simply let this situation persist. They've ignored the cobra, if, if you will. In fact, they're actually boasting in how gracious they are in letting the cobra sleep in their bed in letting the cobra bathe in their bathtub, and letting the cobra play with their kids. So Paul has already told the Corinthians to quit boasting, to quit being arrogant, but instead to remove the cobra, to remove this man from the church. We saw that in verses one through five. And then he gives this illustration of leaven and the Passover as an analogy of the pervasive and the corrupting nature and danger of sin and our corporate duty of responding to it. We saw that in verses six through eight. So now he turns back to the topic of how we respond. What is the responsibility of the church uh, toward this man who was engaging in sexual immorality? Now, before we get to the main point, I want you to notice something uh, in the text. There's a little detail that we need to mention. Notice that Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter where the word wrote is in the past tense. In other words, Paul had already written another letter to the Corinthians before 1 Corinthians. So why is it called 1 Corinthians, uh, you might ask? And, uh, and we don't have that letter. We don't have any copies of it or anything like that. It isn't in the Bible, but don't let that freak you out. Give up on the canon of scripture or something like that. Obviously, Paul wrote other things that aren't in the Bible. That shouldn't be surprising to you, right? Maybe he made a grocery list. Maybe he wrote a nice Mother's Day letter to his own mother before Hallmark existed. When we talk about the, the, the doctrine of the canon of scripture, we don't mean that everything Paul ever said or everything that Paul ever wrote or, or everything all the other apostles ever wrote was inspired and authoritative and thus should be included in scripture. That's not what we mean by this doctrine, but rather we mean that everything that Paul wrote that was inspired is therefore authoritative and should be inscripturated. Or you might think of it like this, every letter in scripture is inspired by God, every letter or every writing in scripture is inspired by God, and every letter which was inspired by God is in scripture. All right, nothing is in scripture that's not inspired and nothing is inspired that's not in scripture. That's the canon of scripture. If that's unfamiliar, we have an entire theological equipping class on that topic, so you should listen to that. So there's at least one previous letter written to Corinth, but in God's providential wisdom, it's not necessary for God's people to have today. With that out of the way, let's turn our attention to the main point. And apparently in the previous letter, Paul had given instructions that the Corinthians were not to associate with sexually immoral people. And the word translated as associate with is really interesting. It's like six syllables. I'm not even gonna try to pronounce it, but we'll put it up on the, uh, the screen. Looks like a, uh, an, an Apple password or something like that. You put a capital letter and a symbol in there. No one's cracking that code. But this particular term is really interesting in that it's a relatively rare word in, uh, in early Greek. It only appears once in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament and also the, the Apocrypha. It only appears once and that's in Ezekiel 20, 18, which says, and I said to, the, uh, to their children in the wilderness, 
Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves. That same uh, Greek word is uh, used there, nor defile yourselves with their idols. So it's only used once in the Septuagint, and then in the New Testament, it appears in our passage, we'll see it actually twice today, and then once more in another Pauline epistle, that is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. That's the exact same underlying Greek word, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. So that's the word, which is again, it's quite rare, but it carries the connotation of associating with or mixing together with or mingling with. This is especially helpful if you remember the context of last week's passage uh, where Paul mentions leaven and it has to, how it has this corrupting influence upon the rest uh, of the dough. And, uh, and so as leaven mixes with and thus corrupts the dough, that's the imagery that Paul is playing on here. Don't mix with, don't mingle with, don't associate with the sexually immoral. And though this particular word, this Greek word is rare, this overall idea, the concept is actually not very rare. In fact, we see a number of similar commands uh, throughout Scripture. Titus 3, 10 through 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You see that same word, have nothing more to do with him. Or 2 John 10 through 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. But probably the most famous passage is found in the Gospels. It's in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And this is perhaps the most helpful of all of these verses that we've read for a couple of reasons. First, because this is spoken by Jesus and not by Paul. Now let me be honest with you, that shouldn't matter at all. All scripture is inspired by God. What matters is not whether Jesus said it or Paul wrote it, but rather whether the spirit inspired it. But I mention the fact that Jesus wrote it because the very kind of people who tend to think that church discipline is unloving or mean or whatever it is are often the exact same kind of people that think that red letter words are more authoritative than uh, black letter words. So that's the first reason. Second, this is helpful because it also gives us a process. Right, remember the baboon story? I had no idea what to do. I knew the situation wasn't ideal, but I didn't know what to do about it. Well, Matthew 18 is really helpful in that it gives this clear step-by-step process, these instructions for dealing with unrepentant sin in the context of the church. And if that process doesn't already make sense to you, let me encourage you to go and listen uh, to either our sermon on this passage in Matthew, Matthew 18, or one of our uh, theological equipping classes on church discipline, we have a number of them, or read a blog entitled, Let Him Be to You as a Gentile and a Tax Collector. In other words, we have a plethora of resources on this topic, sermons, classes, and papers, so none of us should have a good reason for not knowing what Scripture says about the topic of church discipline. So that's the command. He says, have nothing to do with. Don't associate with the sexually immoral. 
We'll talk about what that actually means in a minute, but first, there are these two potential misunderstandings that we need to clarify. And the first one, Zach actually clarified last week. When we talk about church discipline, when we talk about not associating with the sexually immoral or whatever it might be, when the Bible is talking about this, the idea isn't just the sexually immoral in uh, general or anyone who commits one-time act or something like that. It's not just sin in general, but it's talking about unrepentant, ongoing, habitual sort of sin. It's talking about this pattern of sin. Notice again in Matthew 18, the phrases that I've underlined here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Notice this, if he listens to you. And then skip over to the next place it's underlined. At least I hope it is, is it? There it is, yeah. Uh, But if he does not listen, that's the next one. And then if he refuses to listen to them, and then if he refuses to listen even to the church. In other words, it isn't just this individual act of sin which is going to escalate this process, but rather it's unrepentant sin. We've talked before about the church, how the church is a hospital for sinners. So this passage isn't saying, avoid those who are sick with the the stain of sin. That's all of us. Instead, I want you to imagine a hospital in which you have some belligerent patient who won't admit that he's sick and he throws bedpans at your face or whatever it might be when you try to help him. That's kind of the idea here. So when this text says not to associate with the sexually immoral, it doesn't mean someone who maybe struggles with the sin of sexual immorality, but is repentant, is contrite, wants help, is actually struggling with it, trying to fight it. Instead, it means someone who just doesn't care about their sin and someone who resists your help. So that's the first misunderstanding. The second we'll see in the uh, next verse, 1 Corinthians 5, 10 through 11. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So now you see the second misunderstanding, which is that we should stay away from sinners. Stay away from pagans. Stay away from the heathen. Stay away from the unbelievers. Stay away from all those who are lost. Now, to be fair, that six-syllable Greek word that I couldn't pronounce that we put up on the screen, that word, that very word had been used in uh, just that way in Jewish culture. In fact, Philo, the first century Jewish philosopher, used that very word to describe how Jews would not mix with would not associate with, would not mingle with Gentiles so that they wouldn't be defiled. So is that what Paul is saying here? Is Paul saying don't associate with lost people? That sin is like this virus. We shouldn't hang out with sinners lest we catch the sinnies, all right? That we should just kind of circle the wagons. We need to move out to some land in the country. We need to shelter in place so our our kids aren't gonna be corrupted by culture as if the problem is really out there with all the lost people not in our own hearts, as if the solution is to be found in moving to the countryside rather than embracing the gospel. I like to give uh, Zach a hard time because he literally just in the past week, he moved to a new neighborhood. It's on the furthest fringes of McKinney. In fact, part of his uh, neighborhood is in Melissa and about five other couples from the church are all building in the exact same neighborhood. In fact, they're, they're building on the same street, what I call the cult de Zach. And uh, <laughs> At some point, I imagine they'll just somehow com- combine all of their houses into some sort of compound. 
The ATF will come out there, which I think is actually probably bad news for the ATF, knowing some of the guys that are out there. So is that, is that what this text is saying? Is this text suggesting we just build a big compound here at Parkway, call ourselves the children of the commune or the Parkway pals of Jesus or something like that? Is it saying that we circle the wagons, that we avoid the lost, just hang out with Christians, only uh, you know, get Christian plumbers and Christian mechanics and Christian grocers and only buy Christian books and Christian music and watch Christian mu- uh, movies or whatever? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Listen to Jesus in John 17. John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but rather that you keep them from the evil one. In fact, by doing that sort of idea, by withdrawing from the world, you actually can't fulfill your responsibilities toward the world, which is to be salt and light. Or like Philippians 2 says, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Notice the goal is to be blameless and innocent while still in the midst of darkness, surrounded by unbelievers. In other words, rather than avoiding sinners, we should simply avoid sin. So Paul has to correct that misunderstanding. He isn't talking about sinners in general. Instead, he's talking about those who profess to be believers and yet engage in this unrepentant sin. Let me give you an illustration uh, of the difference between the two and how our response should therefore uh, differ. So years back, uh, I've mentioned before, whenever I was first in seminary, I worked at Starbucks. In the, in the entire uh, store, my particular store, only myself and one other guy professed to be Christians. In fact, this other guy who professed to be a Christian, he went to my same church. He was in the community group I led. He was a a, a co-student at my seminary. He was in my spiritual formation group at that seminary. And we were in about three classes together. So uh, like it or not, we became really good friends. And uh, and so then one day, uh, he decided he was tired of living a lie. He had struggled with same-sex attraction uh, for years. And he finally decided that he was tired of struggling with it. He wasn't going to struggle anymore. Instead, he wanted to just live that life freely and to be that guy. So he quit seminary and uh, he decided he was going to move to New York to become a model. But before he moved, I, uh, I sat down with him a couple of times and, uh, and I even wrote a letter to him and I pleaded with him to, uh, to reconsider and to repent. But he refused. He wouldn't listen. Uh, he wouldn't repent. He wouldn't listen to me. He wouldn't listen to the church. So eventually he was excommunicated from the church. And he did move uh, indeed to New York and become a, uh, a male model. Now contrast that story and my response to him with another buddy at the store. And this, this other guy absolutely didn't confess to being a believer. In fact, he was proudly living a, a, a gay lifestyle. And then one day his boyfriend broke up with him and kicked him out of the the apartment and he didn't have anywhere to live. And so I just let him stay with me for a couple of months while he got back on his feet. No judgment, no, uh, no shame. I just tried to serve him out of love. So you have two guys. They're both struggling with the exact same sin but profoundly different responses in light of the fact that one professed to be a believer And it portrayed himself to the world as being a believer, being of the same seminary, the same church, the same faith. The other one admittedly lost. So Paul is not saying that you stay away from, that you don't associate with the lost, that you don't associate with unbelievers. Instead, he's saying that we discipline those who would claim to be believers, who claim to be brothers, but would live in unrepentant 
sin. So what kind of sin? Well, look at this list. He says sexual morality. He says greed. He says idolatry. He says drunkenness, etc. This is an example of what's called a catalog of vices, a catalog of vices. It's pretty common in Pauline literature. The most well-known is probably from Galatians 5, 19 through 21, which says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Another example of these catalog of vices that we'll actually look at in a few weeks, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So you see these catalogs of vices, they're all over the place, particularly in, uh, in Paul's writings. And here's what you need to know about them. The first thing you need to know about them is that they're not exhaustive. In the Galatians 5 passage that we read, Paul even finishes the list by saying, and things like these, all right? There's other things in addition to what he's saying. This is not comprehensive. Instead, it's just a few representative examples. That's the first thing you know, need to know. It's not that he's listing out every single um, example of uh, these t- types of sin. He's just giving a few representative examples. Uh, examples. The second thing you need to know is that at no point does Paul ever uh, reproduce the exact same list. No two lists are the exact same. They overlap in various ways, but he never perfectly replicates a list. So you might be tempted in light of those two things, you might be tempted to think that Paul has just kind of has this uh, sin dice and on that dice is written uh, these various transgressions and he rolls that dice and writes down whatever pops up or whatever pops into his mind. Sexual morality comes up, great, I'm gonna write that. Then he writes greed, then idolatry and so forth. But I definitely don't think that's what he's doing. These aren't actually random vices. In fact, I think Paul has actually been very strategic in the particular sins that he names here in 1 Corinthians 5. And there are two reasons why I think he might have chosen these particular sins and of all of the others that he could have chosen in this particular context. The first reason that I think he mentions these particular sins is that each of these sins finds a counterpart in the Old Testament in the various aspects of the Mosaic law that dealt with executing or excluding fellow Jews from the covenant community. In fact, every sin that's listed here in 1 Corinthians overlaps with the various sins that you see mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy in particular as being grounds for either capital punishment or from being kicked out of the covenant community. So that's the first reason. I think he's playing on that Old Testament context and he's drawing this analogy between Israel and the church. As Israel removed so-called Jews who were engaged in this uh, serious or uh, unrepentant sort of sin, so the church is to remove so-called Christians. That's the first reason. The second reason that I think that he mentions these particular sins is that, uh, that, those the, uh, is that uh, uh, these particular sins were uh, particularly prevalent and thus particularly relevant to the cultural context of Corinth. In other words... If you take each of these sins that he lists here in 1 Corinthians, you see evidences in the rest of the book that those were actual dangers that the church was facing. For instance, sexual morality. We've already seen a man is sleeping with his stepmom. 
Later we'll read that some members are going to temple prostitutes. So sexual morality is a particular problem in Corinth. Or the greedy and swindlers. Or the very next chapter we'll read about people suing one another. People economically taking advantage of one another. Or idolatry in later chapters. Uh, There's an entire section about food sacrificed to idols. Or drunkenness. In chapter 11, we'll see people are getting drunk during communion. So it doesn't seem like Paul is just spinning this wheel of wickedness and writing down whatever it lands on. Instead, he's choosing these particular sins that have both historic biblical context and also immediate cultural relevance to really drive home the point. Now notice the last line in verse 11. It says, not even to eat with such a one. Here we get this further clarification of what it means whenever he says to not associate with this type of person. And this is a particularly strong and particularly fitting image given the fact that he has just talked about bread and leaven and the Passover meal. So it's natural that he ties in the idea of eating. And to really understand this, we need to understand and remember that eating was a very important element of social uh, cohesion in the ancient world. Don't think of the way that we often eat today, right? Eat fast food in your car or you're eating around a flat screen, uh, you're eating a TV dinner. Do they still make TV dinners? I don't know. But uh, don't think of that sort of idea. Eating in the the ancient world was this uh, communal aspect, this corporate aspect. Eating was a way of welcoming someone. Eating was a way of showing hospitality to someone. Eating was a way of showing the status of someone. To fail to eat with someone was to disavow them, to fail to uh, acknowledge relationship with them, in a sense to shame them. It was a profoundly countercultural act to fail to eat with someone in this honor-shame culture that ancient Israel and uh, and just ancient Roman culture uh, in addition was. And that's Paul's intent here. Paul's intent here is to show that idea of shaming, to show that idea of not recognizing. Now, there's two qualifications that I think are necessary, unless you misunderstand what Paul is saying here when he says, don't eat with this person. The first one is, I don't think that we should read this in a literal wooden hermeneutic to say that you can literally never eat with this person. For example, if my buddy came in from New York and if he asked if we could have dinner, I would actually say yes. I would eat with them. But the point is the bulk of the meal would not be laughing and catching up and hearing stories about what it is to be a male model or something like that. Instead, the context would be rather me pleading with him, me begging him, me calling him to repentance, to reconsider his lifestyle. So I don't think that this means that you literally ignore this person completely, but it does mean that you can't have fellowship with him or hang out with him as if things are normal as if things are okay between you because they're not okay. I also think, the second uh, clarification, I also think that there are a few, a select few exceptions to this. For example, if your husband or wife happens to be the person that this passage is addressing, if they happen to be an unrepentant believer, you still have to live with them, you still have to associate with them, you still have to live with them. So I think that there can be a handful of familial or vocational relationships that you would need Uh, to still be able to maintain and so you can't apply this literally, although even then there would be some sort of a non-literal application. So if you find yourself in that position, my encouragement to you is just come and to chat with the elders or staff. We'd love to help you because even as I say that, I know the way the human mind works and I know that I've just created a crack 
that, uh, that it's possible you'll think your situation falls into. But with those qualifications in mind, what does it mean to not eat with this person? Well, honestly, in most churches, it doesn't really mean anything, right? Most churches just kind of skip over uh, and, and avoid church discipline together. Most churches, if they were just going to preach through 1 Corinthians, would maybe just skip 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because it doesn't, it doesn't bring people into the seats and that's the goal, all right? And so in most churches, it doesn't mean much at all. In other churches, they just simply apply this by saying, we're just going to withhold communion. Don't eat the Lord's Supper together, they say. That's what don't eat with means. But I think the imagery is much too strong to only apply to communion. After all, Paul writes, don't even eat with this person. As if eating is but one application of which there are, only, uh, there are also a, a number of others. So think back to all the commands that we've considered thus far. He says, have nothing to do with, don't associate with, or even hand over to Satan which is a phrase we read a, few, uh, a couple of weeks ago. These are drastic measures, right? Christ commands that your entire relationship with this person changes to some degree. From a biblical perspective, everything cannot be okay between you and this person if things are not okay between this person and Jesus. And that's what church discipline is saying. Church discipline, when done correctly, when done biblically, and carried to the furthest extreme of excommunication, that's removing fellowship with someone, kicking someone out of the church, is more than just a prescription of dealing with sin, it's also a diagnosis of that sin. It's the church's attempt to say, you have all the symptoms of being an unbeliever, so please take this medicine and prove yourself to not be. Last section, verses 12 through 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So we've talked before about this mantra of modern culture. Don't judge me. Only God can judge me. I mentioned a couple of uh, weeks back how I saw someone with a tattoo that said, only God can judge me, except instead of judge, it said J-U-G-E. And I thought, nope, I'm judging you right now. All right, here's why that is uh, absurd because Paul explicitly says we are to judge those inside of the church. If you don't wanna be judged by the church, then you're basically saying, I'm not a Christian. You have your choice. You can be an unchristian, unchristian? Uh, you're judging me now, all right? You can be a non-Christian or you can be judged within the church. Those are your only two options. The Bible is clear that you should actually delight in being judged by the church. This is not something you should merely tolerate. This is something that you should desire. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Rather than running from it, you should crave it. You should crave correction and rebuke and so forth. If you knew how deceptive your own heart is, if you knew how corrupt and frail and fragile and fallible your own feelings are, then you would realize how much you need others. Why would you move out into the country to be all alone where the problem is you in the first place? You should want to be around other people who are pointing out your blind spots and so forth. And so part of the hope is that by having others in your life, the small things, the small little sins, the small little compromise are dealt with before they become really big things. If the attraction that you feel at the office to your coworker is confessed when it first raises its head before you've acted on it whatsoever. Maybe the affair never really happens. If the first time you cheat someone out of $5 is brought to the light, 
maybe you don't end up running a Ponzi scheme. In other words, you typically don't just fall into or stumble into egregious sin. There's typically this gradual progression of unconfessed compromises. But if the sin somehow gets too entrenched, it's too deeply rooted, the last ditch effort is that we are to purge the evil person from among you. Now again, this doesn't mean unbelievers. Paul says that if a person is an unbeliever, an outsider, we should recuse ourselves from passing judgment. God himself will assess the punishment in that context. But if it's someone inside the church, someone who professes to be a believer, who is unrepentantly, habitually sinning, then we are to purge the evil person from among us. So why does he say evil person? Why does he say that? Why does he shift all of a sudden into that language? I think there's a few reasons. The first one, because sin is evil, so that's just a synonym. Second, because the word for evil is actually very similar to the word for sexually immoral, which he's already talked about. So the word for evil person is uh, poneros, and that sounds really similar to the word uh, for a sexually immoral person, which is pornos. And so that's the second reason. And the third reason is because that phrase was actually the phrase that was consistently used throughout the Old Testament for how Israel is to exclude those who break covenant with God, in particular in the book of Deuteronomy where it talks about those lists of various sins. How I said this list in 1 Corinthians overlaps with Old Testament instructions and the sins that would get you excluded or even, ex- uh, or even executed in the context of Israel. The phrase that was used there in Deuteronomy was, was to purge the evil person from among you. So he's basically just alluding to or quoting the Old Testament here. And that's 1 Corinthians 5. 9 through 13. Now, in order to bring this passage to a close, I want to mention two more things, the first one being application and the second one being rationale. So how do we do this and why do we do this? How do we carry this out and why? And the how is actually fairly simple. We saw the steps laid out in Matthew 18, right? Where there is sin, and as Zach talked about last week, I thought this was a really helpful part. That's typically a pattern of sin, not just a one-time act, Though in, in, in some cases there is a severe egregious sin, so it could be a one-time thing, but where there is either really severe or really frequent unrepentant sin in the life of a, a fellow believer, you have a responsibility to go one-on-one to that person and to engage your brother or sister, to, uh, to, to call them to repentance, to ask them what are they doing, and to call them to a life of, uh, of holiness. And if they listen to you, If they're repentant, that's it. Mission accomplished. Discipline is done. Good job. But if not, then you still have the responsibility. The ball's still in your court and your responsibility continues and so you escalate things. The sin in that case is too deeply rooted for you to remove it yourself so you need some help. So you take along one or two others with you. And maybe that sinning brother or sister will listen to the three or four of you. And if he does, that's great. Discipline is done, but if not, that's where you need to escalate things uh, even more and eventually even to the point of telling the entire congregation, the entire church body. In that case, the sin is so deeply rooted that it requires our corporate concern, our corporate correction, our corporate prayer. And if he listens to the church community calling him to repentance, that's great, discipline done, but if not, that's when the person is removed from the congregation And that's where your relationship with that person inherently changes and all subsequent interaction has this nuance now of missional intentionality. But maybe that seems mean. Maybe it seems cruel, callous, unkind, unloving, ungracious, unchristian 
for you to cut off relations with this person, to not be friends with this person anymore, to not hang out with this person anymore, to not invite this person over to dinner anymore. If you feel that way, that's why we need to talk about this last thing, and that is the why. Why is church discipline necessary? Why have we spent three weeks talking about this? Why does Paul devote an entire chapter to this? Why does Jesus preach about this? And I wanna give you three reasons. The first reason is that church discipline is necessary for the glory of God. There is this constant, consistent refrain throughout scripture that reminds us God will not be mocked. God will not have his name sullied and blasphemed. Take the context of 1 Corinthians 5 in particular. If even the pagans, if even the pagans know that this particular sin is wrong, having relations with your stepmom, incest, if even the pagans know that it's wrong, how defiled is God's name among the nations? How defiled is God's reputation when his people tolerate what even the heathens think is nasty and gross and immoral? So in order that God's reputation is not tarnished, we have a responsibility to love one another enough to correct, rebuke, and discipline each other. That's the first reason, for the glory of God. The second reason is for the good of the church. Think back to the opening illustration. At the end of the day, a handful of frogs in my mom's room isn't that big of a deal. She simply loses sleep if I don't get them. But a cobra is a very different story. When Paul writes, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, the idea is that when a congregation tolerates sin, that sin threatens to corrupt the entire church. A lot of quote-unquote Christians say that they want to just show quote-unquote grace to someone caught in sin. They don't want to judge them. They don't want to discipline them. What they don't understand is that in their effort to love the one, which I would say is not even loving the one, as we'll see it shortly, but in their effort to love the one, they're actually hating the many as well. By refusing to deal with the one cobra, they endanger the entire household. So that's the second reason for the good and health of the church. And the third reason to exercise church discipline is for the ultimate good of the person who is disciplined. In other words, and even though, even though this is presented as the final step in the discipline process, it actually isn't the final step. Instead, there is another step that is the hope of repentance. This is supposed to be rehabilitative. This is supposed to be restorative. That's the goal. We saw the two weeks ago in verse five, which said, 1 Corinthians 5.5, uh, 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Notice this next phrase, for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's the goal. That's the hope. As an illustration of this, one last story regarding Africa, same safari as, uh, as before, and on that safari, there's one rule, right? The first rule of, rule of safari is what? Don't talk about safari. No, that's not the first rule. The first rule of, uh, of safari is actually you always stay inside the Jeep, right? There's snakes, there's lions, there's leopards. Where we were, there were crocodiles, there were hippos, Cape buffalo, elephants, all kinds of other animals that can make life really unpleasant. So stay inside the Jeep. That was the first and really only rule that our guide gave us. But then our Jeep broke down and, uh, and the guy uh, needs me to get out and help push. Again, hashtag chivalry. So hopefully we can do the whole jump start method. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, I get out and I push it a little bit and it doesn't really jump start. And, uh, and so uh, the guide opens the hood 
and he starts tinkering with the engine. But he made a mistake because he didn't tell me to get back in the Jeep. And so I start just walking around and without realizing I had actually wandered about 50 yards away from the Jeep. And all of a sudden I look up and I realize how far I am from the Jeep and the hairs on the back of my neck begin to, to stand up because I think, there's frogs. No, I don't think that. Uh, I think, you know, there's all kinds of animals out here that could absolutely destroy me. And I realize just how vulnerable I am in that moment. If there happens to be a lion or a leopard or whatever it is nearby, there's no way I can make it to 50 yards before it can cover 100 yards or 150 yards or whatever it might be. And in that moment, all of a sudden, I didn't want to be all alone in the African safari. I didn't want to be all alone in the bush anymore. I wanted to be back in the Jeep where there was at least a, a modicum of safety. And that's what church discipline is intended to do. It's intended to isolate a so-called brother to make him or her feel that danger, to feel, to sense the peril of their predicament in order to drive them back to safety in the body of Christ. Does it work? And sometimes it does. I've seen a handful of cases where it has worked. Other times it hasn't worked, at least not yet especially because the person under discipline will just find another church that doesn't respect the process, doesn't do discipline. So that person never actually feels the sting. They just simply move from one Jeep to another Jeep. And, uh, and so sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but here's the deal. At the end of the day, it kind of doesn't matter if it works or not. We're not pragmatists. We don't build our theology of what we do and what we like as to whether or not something is true or whether or not we'll obey on the basis of whether or not it works or whether we think it works or whether we like it or whatever it might be, ours is simply to be obedient. God's work is to bring about repentance in his timing. So to that end, let's pray. Father, I confess again, this is a hard task, a hard text. We don't naturally like to talk about things like discipline and correction and rebuke, especially because we've, all of us, every single one of us in this room has been affected by culture, which has diluted the meaning of the term grace, has diluted the meaning of the term love, and now we think a bit about it as squishy feelings and not really what its biblical command or, or definition is, which is uh, to do what is best for someone even whenever it costs you. And so I pray that you would help us. You would help us to, uh, to have our understanding of what true love and true grace entails, that we would not only love those who are caught in sin, but also love the church and love your own glory. I pray that you would help us to, uh, to be obedient to this text, not merely to do it begrudgingly, but to find joy and hope and happiness in it. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.